Twelve Years in the Saddle for Law and Order on the Frontiers of Texas by Sergeant W.J.L. Sullivan, Texas Ranger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Twelve Years in the Saddle, Chapters 43 to 50. Chapter 43, The San Saba Mob. In 1896, I was ordered by Governor Culberson to go to San Saba and put down the mob that had existed there for 16 years. Governor Culberson sent me because he knew I was well posted with this mob, for I had been sent there in 1890, as stated in a preceding chapter, to preserve order while court was going on. I had also been a witness in the Campbell case ever since then, and was familiar with all the leading people on both sides of the wrangle. By this time, the situation had reached a very perplexing stage in San Saba. The men of both factions were very bitter and aggressive. Good and bad citizens, both, were on either side. In their continued strife, both factions had lost sight of the lofty ideals which had probably at first actuated them, and now allowed their animal passions to overcome them. The mob people had originally organized to put down lawlessness, while the anti-mobbists had organized to oppose mobbism because they thought the law should be allowed to take its own course. But those first principles had long been forgotten. Lawless people had joined both factions and had introduced their evil influences among members of each side. When the mob was first organized, it started out by preventing crime, especially stealing, but now lawlessness was being encouraged by both sides and could not be suppressed by local authorities. The bitterness between the two factions had become so great that a number of murders occurred and were traced to one or the other side. The state finally had to step in and put down the strife by suppressing the mob, as that was the side which was arrayed against the law. Cattle thieves, murderers, and other criminals were also given prompt attention, irrespective of the faction to which they belonged. When we went to San Saba, I took Dud Barker from Company B, and Captain J. H. Rogers sent me two men from his company, Edgar T. Neal and Alan Maddox. Barker and I were joined by the two other rangers, Neal and Maddox, when we reached Goldthwaite. Sheriff Hudson of San Saba also met us at Goldthwaite with a wagon and team. The three rangers under me went to San Saba in the wagon, and Sheriff Hudson took me over in his buggy. The county furnished me with a wagon, harness, and a span of mules, and the state furnished me a cook. We spent three days in the town of San Saba and then left for Hannah's Crossing on the Colorado River. That was a beautiful place to camp, and that part of the river was one of the finest fishing spots in the world. We remained there four months and enjoyed our stay, except for the danger we were in when we first arrived there. The people of both factions, especially the mob element, were antagonistic to us when we first went to San Saba and our lives were in danger. When we four boys pitched our tent at Hannah's Crossing, we shook hands with each other and made a solemn pledge that we would stay there and do our duty if we all had to die together. We vowed that we would arrest anybody of either faction whom we caught disobeying the law, and that we would die working the lever of our guns before we would give up our prisoners, no matter how many men we had to fight. When we pitched our camp, we expected that we would never have to move it again, for it seemed to me that we were doomed to die at the hands of some of the people of the bad element who were indignant at our coming to San Saba. We went about our work quietly, however, and made friends with everybody we could, and showed them that we were not after anybody but those who maliciously violated the law. The better class of people soon began to treat us kindly, and we were often invited to take dinner with them. 
We always accepted their invitations, and would eat one day with a member of the mob, and the next day we would probably dine with someone of the anti-mob faction. We showed no partiality to either side, and in that way we gained the respect of the law-abiding citizens of both factions, and our stay in San Saba was, for the most part, quite pleasant. With the tough characters, however, we had some rough times, and I met with quite a number of thrilling experiences, some of which I shall relate in following chapters. Hannah's Crossing was twenty miles from San Saba, on the San Saba and Brownwood Railroad. When we went out to it, we were accompanied by Sheriff Hudson, who stayed at our camp a day or two before he went back to town. We located in Jim Lindsay's pasture, which was near the river. A week before we pitched camp, three men concealed themselves in this pasture one day and assassinated Bill James, a well-known citizen, while the latter was going after water in his wagon. We tried to capture the assassins, but they had a weak start on us, so we gave up, as we had lots of other work to do, and left it to the county officials to ferret out the perpetrators of the James murder. During the trouble between the two factions in San Saba, a Mr. Turner, an anti-mobist, was killed, and it was alleged that he was murdered by Matt Ford and Toby Bridge, two members of the mob. The trial, which took place at Austin, was sensational and created statewide interest. Ford and Bridge were defended by Governor Hogg, Judge James Robertson, and Judge Pendexter of Austin, and attorneys John and Ab Walters, brothers of San Saba. They were as good lawyers as the state afforded. Judge Albert Burleson and W.C. Linden were the prosecuting attorneys. There were 369 witnesses. Judge Morris was the district judge. The two men were at last acquitted and went back home to live, and they led a different life and made good citizens. The two factions in San Saba finally made peace with each other and buried the hatchet. The last time I was with them, they were going to church and visiting each other, and all signs of former strife and bad feeling had faded away. Chapter 44. A Bad Dog I was summoned from San Saba, where I was at work putting down a mob, to Wellington, Collinsworth County, to appear against some cattle thieves. While in Wellington, I was presented with a large dog, which weighed a hundred and ten or fifteen pounds. He was a hound, and looked to be very ferocious. I thought it would be a good idea to take him to San Saba, pass him off as a fine bloodhound, and get the people afraid of him, as that would help me to put down some of the lawlessness that reigned there. When I went to Fort Worth, I bought a fine collar and two chains for him. I named my dog Bill. I expressed him to Lomeda, where he and I were to take the stage to San Seba. I put both chains on Bill to make people think he was very hard to hold. When we arrived at Lomeda, I chained the dog to the stage. He reared and surged against the chains furiously, and acted like he would tear the earth up if he could get loose, but it was all nothing but pretensions, for the dog really was no account for anything. When he reared around, growled, showed his teeth, and tried to break the chains, he looked as dangerous as a lion. And I was glad of it, for I wanted him to fool the people, and make them think I had a dog that would tear them up if he was sent after them when they committed a crime. He reminded me of a man who seems anxious to get into a fight, although deathly afraid of the other fellow. The stage driver was afraid of Bill, and would not go near him. That night at ten o'clock, an old nester from the woods walked up to the stage to get a jug of syrup that he had sent for that morning. When Bill got sent to the old man and his two dogs, he at once got on the warpath and charged around like a lion. The stage driver said to the man, Please do not come any nearer. Sullivan has his bloodhound on the stage, and he is about to turn everything over now. If he should break loose, he might kill you and your dogs too. I will set your jug of syrup down, and when I drive away, you can get it. 
This break of Bill's gave him a big reputation as a ferocious bloodhound to start off with. The stage driver asked me to give him Bill's record, and he also wanted to know where I got such a fine dog. I did not inform the stage driver that Bill was a worthless dog, that he had been raised on the streets of Wellington, but I told him he had been given to me by a friend of mine who lived in New York. I told him that Bill had done wonderful work for the officials at Sing Sing in running down the most noted criminals in the United States. The people in the stage guessed at that, and I told them that I would use Bill on the criminals in San Saba. I felt it my duty to tell the people these tales about this dog, for the odds were against me in San Saba, and my life would not be in so much danger if the people were afraid of Bill. Besides that, some people might refrain from committing crime for fear this dog would catch them, and either hurt them or bring them to justice. I reached San Saba about twelve o'clock that night and put up at the hotel. By the next morning, the news had spread all over the country about me bringing Bill with me, and people flocked in from every direction to see Bill. They asked me all kinds of questions about him, and time and again I told them his whole wonderful history. They asked me to let him chase somebody, but I told them that he was in San Saba for straight business and not for foolishness. At the proper time, I said, he will show his blood, but the main reason why I don't let him chase someone for fun is that he might kill somebody, and I do not want to be responsible for anything like that. They thought that was a good reason, and they were more afraid of him than ever. I was detained so long by the people who wanted to see Bill that I didn't reach my camp until that afternoon. I kept my dog with me at Hannah's Crossing, and all the people all up and down the river came to my camp to see him. I kept his fine collar on him, and he looked very vicious as he reared against the two chains and snapped and snarled at the visitors and showed his big, sharp teeth. I cautioned the people not to get too close to him, telling him that he was not a play dog. I also told them not to look too hard at him, for fear he would break the chains and tear somebody up before I could get him under control. The people minded me very well, and I never did have any trouble between them and the dog. Not a single murder occurred while I had Bill, and I had no occasion to use him, for which I was very thankful, as Bill would have proved an absolute failure had I ever unchained him and set him off after a criminal. Chapter 50 A Good Time Lost One Sunday morning, while we were camping at Hannah's Crossing, all four of us rangers, Edgar Neal, Alan Maddox, Doug Barker, and I, were invited across the river to participate in a hard-shell Baptist foot-washing. We accepted the invitation and enjoyed the meeting very much. The members of the congregation asked us to stay with them for dinner, as they were to have a spread on the grounds, and they desired very much to have us eat with them. They were to introduce us boys to the young people, and we were intending to have a very sociable afternoon. We had told the people that we would eat with them, and had made arrangements to stay all day. But just as the doxology was being sung, our cook, whom we called Tom, came to the church in fool's haste, lit off his horse at the church door, and asked a man who was sitting on a back seat to get us rangers for him. We went out as soon as the man said that Tom wanted us. Tom informed us that there were two men at camp who desired very much to see us, and for us to go as quickly as possible. We made a break for our horses, jumped into our saddles, and made a three-mile run in a few minutes, believing all the time that when we reached camp we would hear that someone in the neighborhood had been killed. When we arrived at our destination, we found the two men waiting for us. One of them said he wanted to speak to me. He took me off where the others couldn't hear him, and in whispers told me that on the day before, while he was in the cotton patch, someone had entered his smokehouse and stolen twelve pounds of bacon. 
I told him at once that if it wasn't Sunday, I would hang him for causing us rangers to run our horses nearly to death, besides missing our dinner and a good time with the young people, just because he had twelve pounds of bacon stolen from him. We offered to go and see about the theft, however, and the next morning we got our horses and started over to his place, which was about nine miles from camp. Well, right along the road we got thirsty, so we stopped in at a house and got a drink of water. When we entered the yard, we saw two ladies in the hallway of the house sewing on a quilt. When we asked their permission to get a drink of water, one of the ladies politely told us to come in and help ourselves, which we did. After we had finished drinking, she seated us and said she thought she knew where we were going. Maybe you do, I said, in a manner that invited her to speak on and tell us what was on her mind. I think you are going to see about some bacon that was stolen last Saturday afternoon, she replied. Yes, we have started over that way, I said. I have no idea, she continued, that anyone stole that bacon. The smokehouse door was left open, and I think the dog went in and dragged a few pounds of meat out. The man married a mere child, and I suppose she left the door open herself when she went down to the field to see her husband. When the old lady got through talking, I spoke up and asked, Why didn't the crazy man marry a woman that was old enough and had sense enough to keep house for him? His wife is my daughter, she replied, and then the rangers had the laugh on me. Conversation between the old lady and me then ceased for a few minutes, and I thought of the good time I would have had Sunday, and the trouble I would have been saved, if those two men had not ridden nine miles to our camp, and made the cook ride three more miles, and summon all four of us rangers, and cause us to ride nine miles and back for nothing the next day, all because a dog had stolen ten or twelve pounds of bacon. As we expected, we found no bacon thief, and went back to camp feeling rather done up, and wishing to forget the incident as long as we lived. Chapter 46. Fording the River Soon after dark one evening, while we were camping at Hannah's Crossing, I received a message from the postmaster at Indian Creek in Brown County, saying that the post office at that place had been robbed. I was urged to go to the scene of the robbery at once, so we packed one of the mules and immediately started for Indian Creek. It was very dark, and rain was pouring down in torrents, but we went on anyway, and tried to find a place where we could ford the river, as we wanted to cross it before daylight. We went up the river about twelve miles, but still could find no place where we thought it was safe to cross. We feared that it was raining so hard further up the river that we couldn't cross any better up there than where we were, so we decided to stay at Bill Martin's house, which was nearby, until daylight. We went up to Mr. Martin's house and called him to the door. He asked me who we were. I told him that I was Sullivan and that I had the Texas Rangers with me. It was raining so hard that it was only with difficulty that we could hear each other talk. Martin invited us to spend the night in the house with him, but we told him we couldn't stop unless it was impossible for us to ford the river. We then asked him if he thought we could make it safely to the other side. In reply, he said that if it has rained above as it has here, the river is bound to be swimming, and that he would not advise us to cross the river tonight. He again invited us to spend the night in the house with him, but we were so wet that we decided it wouldn't do for us to go in and sleep in his beds and get them damp so I asked Mr. Martin to let us sleep in his gin house, since we could not cross the river, and did not want to go in his house in our condition. He assured us that that would be perfectly agreeable to him, so we went into the gin, and each one of us dug a hole in the cotton and slept in it. The next morning, when we got up, we found that the heat of the cotton had nearly dried us. Mr. Martin and his wife fixed a good breakfast for us, and as long as I live, I shall never forget that big dish of fried chicken and that pot of delicious coffee that they had prepared for us. 
After breakfast, we went to the river to see if it was very high, and found that it was just about swimming. It looked silly for wise men to plunge into that river, but we four boys split it wide open, leading our pack mule, and crossed safely over to the other side. We reached Indian Creek that day, and captured the men who had robbed the post office. I sent them to Brownwood by Barker and Maddox, and they stood trial for the robbery, and beat the case. Edgar Neal and I remained in that community several days looking up testimony for the state. Chapter 47 Girls Try to Kiss Neal While looking up testimony in the country around Indian Creek, a few days after the post office robbery, Edgar Neal and I came to a house where a Mrs. Hogan, a widow, and her four daughters lived. It was about an hour and a half before sundown when we arrived at Mrs. Hogan's house. We had learned before reaching this place that the two men whom we had arrested had stopped there the night they committed the post office robbery. Mrs. Hogan said that they left her house that night at 11 o'clock. She also informed us that the two men lived directly east of her, and when they left the house the night of the robbery, they climbed over the fence and went due west, the direction of the post office. The evidence that we had accumulated that day, and the things Mrs. Hogan told us that evening, led us to believe that we had arrested the right parties. When we first went into her house and seated ourselves, Mrs. Hogan asked us if we were strangers in that part of the country. I replied that we were, and I told her my name. She gave me her name and treated me in a cordial manner. I saw at once that they were well-to-do, cultured people, and after introducing myself, I presented Mr. Neal to Mrs. Hogan. Mrs. Hogan, I said, allow me to introduce you to Mr. Neal. Is it Bedgar Neal? she asked. It is, Edgar answered. My dear nephew, she joyfully exclaimed, why didn't you let me know you when you first came in? I thought I recognized those eyes when you first stepped in at the door. She made a dive at Edgar and grabbed him by the hand. She looked like she was trying to kiss him, but he leaned his head out of her reach. Then she asked him how Dona and the baby were, and he replied that they were both well. You have fleshened up mightily, she said. He nodded. I was just about to tell the old lady that she was mistaken in this man when she called out to her four daughters, who were in the next room, and said, Come in, girls. Cousin Bedgar is here. All four of them came hopping and skipping in at once, and they were as pretty as any girls I ever saw. I was wishing that they would make some mistake about me, but they didn't. Edgar got the benefit of it all. The lady introduced the girls to him, for fear he had forgotten some of their names. Then they began to hanging on him and trying to kiss him. He played the same game on them, however, that he played on the old lady. He ducked his head and leaned it over to one side. After they got through hugging each other, Edgar and the four girls sat down together in the middle of the room. One of the girls asked Edgar how Dona and the baby were. He replied that they were both well. You have fleshened up so we like to have not known you, another girl observed, when she had a chance to speak. Now, while all this was going on, my heart was beating like a mule kicking downhill. I was frightened. I knew if they discovered their mistake and found out this was not Cousin Bedgar, that they would make it hot for us, for the old lady had a game appearance, and also the four girls. So I kept asking questions about the robbers, for fear they would keep talking to Edgar and get him tangled up and learn that he was fooling them. Whenever they asked Edgar a difficult question, I broke into the conversation and asked some important question about the robbers, thus saving Edgar from answering their queries. Finally, it got to where I could stand it no longer, and I said, Ladies, we will have to be traveling, as we are on urgent business. The old lady and all four girls spoke up and said at once, Cousin Bedgar, you are not going to leave us now, are you? 
Holding on to his arms and coat, they continued, Cousin Bedger, you have not been here in so long. You cannot leave here tonight. I spoke up and said, We are forced to go, ladies. We will return tomorrow evening and spend the night. And Edgar said, Yes, we will. I see you have a piano, and we will sing and play. The old lady said, My dear boy, you should not leave your aunt tonight. We were both satisfied that we had spent about all the time we could spare at that place. So after telling the family goodbye, we quickly made for our horses. We laughed a great deal about the joke on Mrs. Hogan, and often wondered how we came out of it alive. We learned afterward that they enjoyed the joke very much, and when the girls first realized that their mother had caused them to be fooled, they took it good-naturedly, and in a spirit of fun, they pounded her considerably on the back. Edgar Neal enjoyed jokes immensely, and was a good-hearted man. He quit the ranger company at San Saba, and became the sheriff of that county, making the people a splendid officer during the eight years that he served them. Chapter 48. The Capture of Wax Lee While I was stationed at San Saba, Tom Gray, a hardware man of that town, received a letter addressed to a man with his name. Upon opening it, he saw that it was written by someone in Paris and was meant for another Tom Gray. In this letter, the Paris man warned his friend in San Saba that the officers were still looking for him and that he had gone to a mighty good place to get caught. The letter also revealed the fact that the man's real name was Wax Lee and that Tom Gray was his alias. When Mr. Gray, the merchant, told me about the letter, I knew at once that the other Tom Gray was badly wanted somewhere, so I went to the post office and waited for someone to call for the letter. Late that evening, Mr. Jim Brooks, brother to Judge Brooks of Austin, came to the post office and called for the letter which was addressed to Tom Gray. I asked Mr. Brooks if he knew anyone by the name of Tom Gray. He replied that he had a man by that name working for him, and the Gray had a companion with him. Brooks lived about twelve miles out of town, so I got a buggy and went out to his place. Brooks went in the buggy with me, and I sent the three ranger boys out there on horseback. I hadn't recovered from the injuries, which I received while chasing Del Dean, and was not able to ride horseback. When we reached the farm, Brooks led us to an old house where the two men were camping. We could not get the buggy right up to the house, however, on account of a slough which emptied into the Colorado River and which lay between us and the house. This slough was so muddy and boggy that I could not get the buggy across, as I have stated before. So I sent the three other rangers over on their horses and told them to capture the man and be very careful in making the arrests. After the boys had gone, I discovered a tent about forty yards in front of me, and thinking that the man I wanted might possibly be in it, I got out of the buggy and, leaving Brooks to hold the horses, I walked toward the tent to see what I could find. Brooks had told me that Lee was dark-complected, and when I had nearly reached the tent, a man of that description came to the door. I decided to arrest him, but, when I started toward him, Jim Brooks called out and told me that the boys had arrested the men, so I whirled around and went back to the buggy. When the rangers got back to the buggy, I saw that Brooks was mistaken, for the boys had captured only one man, and he was the companion of the one I was after. Brooks saw and heard the rangers when they made the arrest, but took it for granted that they had captured two men instead of one, and being thus mistaken, he informed me wrong. When I turned and walked away from the tent, Wax Lee, the man whom I started to arrest, broke and ran toward the river, crossed the slough, and hid in the brush, which was thick all along there. I saw the man running, and when the rangers turned their prisoner, a young fellow, over to me, I told them to go after the other man immediately. I mounted Brooks and sent him along with them, as I knew they would have a hard time finding the man if he hid in the brush, and they would need all the help they could get. 
As I was afraid he would do, the man hid in the brush, and the boys couldn't find him anywhere. After searching the brush a little while, they gave it up, and got together to plan what was the best move to make next. During the conference, Dud Barker discovered that while he was loping his horse a few minutes before that, his six-shooter had worked around too far behind him, and while talking to the other man, he reached around and pulled his gun in front of his belt to readjust it. None of the men knew that Wax Lee lay hidden within a few feet of them while they were wondering where he had gone to, and Lee could not understand what the men were saying, so when he saw them stop, he thought he had been discovered, but decided to lie still, thinking that he might be mistaken. When he saw Dud Barker pull his pistol in front on his belt, however, he thought that he had surely been discovered, and imagined that Barker was going to shoot him, so he called out and asked the rangers not to kill him. He then surrendered to the boys, who were very much surprised, since they had not seen him before he crawled out of the brush. The rangers fired their six-shooters to let me know that they had captured their man. When I heard the shots, however, I was afraid that they were having a battle with Lee, but pretty soon they brought him up, and we took the two prisoners to town. When the boys brought him up to the buggy, Lee told me that he was satisfied just as soon as he saw I was after him that I had his right name. He then told me that his name was Wax Lee, and that that was his son whom we captured with him. When we reached San Saba with the prisoners, we learned that Wax Lee and his son were wanted in Paris, Texas, and also in the Indian Territory. We wired the sheriff at Paris, telling him that we had his prisoners. The two men were charged with four murders and twenty thefts of horses and cattle. The sheriff at Paris gave us a hundred dollars for the capture. A big reward was out for the men in the Indian Territory, and we tried to get it, but some slick scoundrel beat us out of it. Chapter 49. The Cowboys' Reunion Judge Glasgow of Seymour notified me while I was in Austin in 1897 that I was elected Marshal of the Day over the Cowboys' Reunion, which was to be held in his town on the 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th days of August. Later on, Judge Glasgow came to Austin, and I met him at the Avenue Hotel. I was then attending court, aiding in the trial of the famous Matt Ford and Toby Bridge murder case, which was removed from San Saba to Austin. Judge Glasgow asked me if I had received his letter, in which he had notified me that I was to be the marshal of the day at the Cowboys' reunion in August. I told him that I had received the letter, and he asked me if I wasn't going to serve them. I told them that I would be proud to do so, but that I would have to see MacDonald, my captain. "'Where is Bill?' he asked. "'There he is, just a few steps from you,' I answered. Glasgow walked up to MacDonald and told him that a committee had elected me to act as marshal of the day over the Cowboys' reunion at Seymour, and asked him if I could serve them. MacDonald replied that I could not go, as I would have too much work to do then putting down the mob which was raging in San Saba County. "'You are over, Sullivan, as captain,' Glasgow replied, "'but there are two men at the Capitol over you, and I shall go and see them.' Glasgow then walked up to the Capitol and was gone about a half hour. When he returned to the hotel, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, Charlie Culberson, the governor of our state, and W.H. Mabry, the adjutant general, both say that you shall act as marshal at the Cowboys' reunion. I left for Seymour in time to arrive there by the night of the 2nd of August, and the following morning I was sworn in as marshal of the day. 20,000 white people and 500 Comanches were in Seymour for the reunion. Chief Canna Parker had charge of the Comanches. I served them four days and nights as an officer and never jailed a single person. The whole town was turned loose to the cowboys and other visitors. There never was better behavior known in such a large crowd before. Thirty saloons were open day and night, and the cowboys drank some and had lots of fun, but they were as quiet as necessary and respected the law. 
On the night of the 5th, the Indians gave a great war dance on the reunion grounds that was quite an interesting sight to witness. I had to arrest a man for cutting the rope that was stretched around the arena in which the Indians danced, but his wife and mother and two young ladies who were with him all pled so earnestly in his behalf that I didn't lock him up, but let him go free. Judge Glasgow, ex-sheriff Sam Suttlemeyer of Baylor County, Canna Parker and his favorite wife, and I had our photographs taken together. Canna stole his squaw from another Comanche, and his men got mad and deserted him, and he went to New Mexico, where they stayed several months. The Comanche, whose wife was stolen from him, finally wrote to the chief and told him if he would give him $1,100, he could keep her and could come back and take charge of his tribe. Canna at once paid the money and again became the chief of the Comanches. I found Canna and his men to be easily controlled, and they gave me no trouble whatever. One night after the reunion had closed for the day, and while the people were on their way from the fairgrounds to the city, about 2,000 cowboys bunched up together and commenced firing their six-shooters off in the air. The guns gleamed in the moonlight, and it looked like the world was full of lightning bugs. Canna and several of his braves rushed up to me on their horses and asked me what the shooting meant. I told them that it was a lot of jolly cowboys having a little fun, but meaning no harm. Canna and his Comanches were on the reunion grounds, and I told Canna to call his men together and have them form themselves in a circle. They did as I had requested, and all got as close together as possible, and I held them that way until the cowboys had passed and ceased their shooting. There was no danger of the cowboys making any break at the Indians, but I thought I had better take that precaution. I witnessed during that reunion some of the finest roping and bronco-busting that I ever saw in my life. I have often wished since then that I could witness another reunion like this and be the marshal of the day and have things move off as they did at Seymour. Chapter 50 Hidden Witnesses When I left the ranger service, I accepted a deputy shift under Sheriff Pirrell of Williamson County. One day while court was in session at Georgetown, Judge D.S. Chesser told me that he had received a phone message from Corn Hill saying that four suspicious characters were camping about ten miles from that place and that some officers should go out and investigate the party. The man who phoned Judge Chesser had been out in bee hunting, and when he walked near the camp, one of the four men motioned him not to come near them by waving a towel at him. The hunter became suspicious and phoned Judge Chesser. As all the officers were busy, Judge Chesser asked me to go out with him to round up the men and find out what they were doing in that pasture. I told him that I would go with him, and we left a little after dark, reaching Cornhill about 11 o'clock that night. A Mr. Johnson, the man who had sent for Judge Chesser, met us there, and, mounting his horse, went the rest of the way with us. About three miles from Cornhill, Johnson said that he knew a man down in the cornfield who was very good and brave, and that it would be a good idea to take him along as the place where the men were camped was surrounded by brush, and that they could easily escape if we didn't take another man along to help us. Though it looked rather funny to me, I consented to his getting this man from the cornfield, but our new assistant seemed very willing to join us, so I had no regrets about it. He carried a muzzle-loading shotgun, the lock, stock, and barrel of which were all three whitewashed. Traveling a mile further on, we came to another house, and Johnson expressed the wish that we get the man who lived there to join us, so we pressed him in, too. About three miles further on, we stopped and got breakfast. We had lots of fried chicken to eat, and we did full justice to the occasion, as we had ridden all night and were dreadfully hungry. Referring to the gentleman who was entertaining us, Judge Chesser, while at the breakfast table, spoke up and said, We had better get this man to go along with us. So I was now convinced that the judge was in favor of plenty of company. 
The other two men promptly said that they thought it was a good idea to get him to go along and help us, and I commenced wondering if all the men's feet were not getting cold. We pressed our kind friend into service and left immediately after breakfast in order to arrive at the camp of the suspicious characters by daylight so we could find them asleep. We were riding fast, and the morning star was rising and shining brighter all the time. Nearing our destination, we came to another house where we found a man and his dogs in the cotton field driving out a bunch of cattle that had broken into his field during the night. The man, his dogs, and his cows with their bells on were kicking up such a terrible racket that Judge Chester decided that we had better press this man into service also, but we had a hard time getting him to the fence. When he finally reached us, however, we told him that we wanted him to help us arrest a bunch of outlaws who were camped nearly a mile from his place. He took a chill at once and said he was sick. He told us, though, that he had a hired man sleeping out in the yard on a cot, and that he thought he would go with us. We woke the man up and told him what we wanted, and he said he would go with us all right, and reaching under his pillow, he pulled out a twenty-two caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. I asked him if that was the only gun he had, and he replied that it was. I handed him my forty-five Colt revolver and loaned my other one to the man with the whitewashed gun, leaving me with my Bill Cook Winchester, which was a plenty for me. I felt perfectly safe with my trusty Winchester, for I knew it had never gone back on me. Arriving within two hundred yards of the four men's camp, we dismounted and tied our horses. We walked up a little trail, which carried us about a hundred and fifty yards nearer the camp. Then we stopped and commenced a discussion as to what we should do next. The morning star shone still brighter and brighter. We decided to lie still until daybreak. We heard a rooster crow in the camp, and I remarked that they must be movers. Just as day was peeping upon us, I told them to keep still, and I would make a sneak of about thirty steps toward their camp. I gave them instructions to come to me, one at a time, as soon as they saw me stop, and they did exactly as I had told them. I made another sneak, and they came to me again, as they had done before. That put us within ten or twelve steps of the camp. The chickens saw us, and not knowing what to make of us, they did some tall talking with each other, and I thought they would wake the men up before they got through. One man did rise up, and getting on his knees, he held his Winchester in his right hand and looked toward the west, but we had come from the east, and he failed to see us. I was in front of my men, and could see this man when he got up, but they couldn't, as they were scattered out behind live oak bushes, and I never spoke to them about the man handling his Winchester. It is about daylight, and we had better be getting up, said the man on the ground to the other men, but none of the sleepers responded to his call. In a few moments, the man who had spoken these words himself lay down on his stomach, and pretty soon had gone off into the sweet by and by. I motioned my men to follow me, and in another minute we had spread all over the camp. Two of the men were sleeping on the ground, and two in the wagon, but we captured all four of them with ease. We learned from them that they were witnesses in the Owens rape case, which was then being tried in Georgetown. When they told me that they were witnesses in that case, and that Colonel McKemson had them hidden out on the quiet, I asked Judge Chesser if they had any such names as these men gave as witnesses, and he replied that they did. I then turned them loose, and knowing that they were caught up with, they went to town that day and reported at the courthouse. Colonel Mackinson told me to let his witnesses alone after that. End chapters 43 to 50